This is the LexisNexis Torts and Personal Injury Law Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Bruce L. Simon of Pearson Simon, Warshaw & Penny, LLP, on California's unfair competition law. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis Legal Podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. Bruce L. Simon is a partner with Pearson Simon Warshaw & Penny, LLP, a California class action and civil litigation firm with offices in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Mr. Simon has a diverse litigation practice representing plaintiffs and defendants, as well as extensive trial experience. During his 30-year career, he's handled some of the nation's largest antitrust and business cases, including several that have settled for over $100 million. He's a past chair of the State Bar of California's Antitrust and Unfair Competition section, as well as past chair of the Business Tort section of the American Trial Lawyers Association. Mr. Simon is the chair of the board of directors of the University of California's Hastings College of the Law and is currently vice chair of the ABA Antitrust Trial Committee. He's also been a panelist for California Continuing Education of the Bar on recent developments in the law. Mr. Simon is a co-author of the Matthew Bender Practice Guide, California Unfair Competition and Business Torts, which provides in-depth and practical coverage of the state's unfair competition law, as well as antitrust law and other commonly prosecuted business torts. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, Mr. Simon. It's my pleasure. How did you get started at class action and business litigation? I think where it really started was becoming a trial attorney, which has been the emphasis in my career since the beginning. And going to trial and trying cases led essentially into business litigation. Uh, and the obvious transition there was to take cases that were individual cases and look for the opportunities to bring them as class action. Did you know much about the practice area before landing your first job? I, I studied it a bit in law school. Uh, I went to Hastings, and uh, one of the great things about that school is that they have a lot of practical-type classes, and I took almost all of the practical classes, the trial classes, both in civil and criminal, and that exposed me to it. I also was very interested in constitutional law and those type of issues, including civil rights, uh, introduced me to how to do uh, class actions and how you could get relief for uh, a group of people as opposed to just individual cases. When you're evaluating a potential new plaintiff's case, what factors do you consider and how do you decide what causes of action to assert? Obviously, the first thing you have to look at is uh, the strength of the claim, and I always go with my gut. Every day, we all encounter things out in the real world, which we say, that just doesn't sound right to me or feel right to me. Uh, and if it doesn't pass that smell test to begin with, it, it probably is not going to go through to the next step of evaluating it. So if it feels like a case that uh, somebody's been victimized and it sounds like something that happens not only to that person but to a lot of people and it makes sense uh, and you've experienced it in your real life, something similar to it, it gets you to the next step, which is uh, taking a look at the, the legal strengths of the case and, and, and the potential downsides. You always want to look at a case from a local 
aspect because at the end of the day, if you take a case, you have to be prepared to try it. And trials take place in courtrooms uh, in the local areas in which the cases are brought. So one of the things you look at as well is you know, where could the case be brought, what would be the reaction to that case in the courtroom that you're going to bring the case, and what type of reaction you're going to get in general all the way up the food chain of the courts as high up as the Supreme Court, because usually these big cases have multiple uh, appellate uh, routes that they pursue before they get to the end of the, the case. So you have to look at all that together. A lot of the cases that you handle fall under California's unfair competition law, Business and Professions Code Section 17200, which was first enacted in 1977. What's been the greatest change to the law in the last five years? Well, as with all areas of the law, uh, there's a certain pendulum effect that occurs where it goes from one extreme to another and essentially comes back to the middle at some point. And that's been the case with the unfair competition law in California. It started back in the 70s and 80s as being a very broad, highly favored way to uh, remedy competition violations, not only between businesses, but on behalf of large groups of people, uh, going back to the time of uh, the Children's Committee on Television case, which was an opinion out of the California Supreme Court, which basically established the likely to deceive standard under Section 17200. But then, uh, as often is the case, when you have broad areas of relief, uh, you get some abuses, and that, in fact, occurred uh, under 17200. There was the debacle with the Trevor Law Group down in Southern California, uh, and they used that statute in ways that were not scrupulous and hurt people. And so then the pendulum swung back with the, the passage of Prop 64, which tried to pare back the effectiveness of 17200. And now, most recently, the last swing of the pendulum is, is that the tobacco two cases have, in fact, restored certain aspects of 17200. And although it isn't back to its former glory completely, it nonetheless is a very uh, powerful uh, weapon in plaintiff's cases. What was at issue in the tobacco two cases? Well, essentially, uh, the tobacco two cases uh, addressed Prop 64 and what it was intended to do, it was a ballot initiative in 2004, and a lot of the uh, briefing and the discussion surrounding the tobacco suitcases and a lot of the underlying uh, decisions in trial courts around the state had to do with what the intent uh, of the voters was in connection with passing Prop 64. And essentially, the two main points that were at issue in the tobacco two cases was the issue of uh, actual reliance by the class representative and class members with one side interpreting uh, Prop 64 to say that all class members had to actually rely on some type of uh, fraudulent or misleading aspect of the violation that was alleged. And there was also the issue of, of causation and who had to be damaged and how those damages were shown. So uh, under those two particular uh, issues, there were very diverse opinions, and, and the Tobacco II cases clarified, at least going down the road, where uh, things stood on those two issues. So how did the court rule? The, the court basically found that in order to 
bring a, a consumer class action uh, under 17200, in particular the, uh, the fraudulent prong of 17200. There's also an unfair prong and an illegal prong under, under that statute. The court found, at least under the fraudulent prong, which was the major area of discussion because it was the back of two cases were advertising cases, not unlike the Children's Committee on Television cases, which were advertising cases having to do with cereals and the fact that cereals which had lots of sugar in them were being advertised as being good for kids when, in fact, the sugar that was contained in the cereal was alleged to not be good for kids. And therefore, the advertising that was done on the cereal was causing moms and kids to ask for that cereal and eat something that was alleged not to be healthy. Similar situation in the tobacco two cases that the advertising, the false advertising alleged on tobacco products caused people to buy those products and use tobacco when they wouldn't have uh, used them in the first place. So, of course, in a situation where you have millions of consumers buying and, and consuming tobacco products, it's a big difference between the court saying that every member of the class, millions of people had to actually rely or whether the class representative actually had to rely in order to bring the case and, and to proceed to get a remedy on behalf of the class. And in effect, uh, the court said that the representative plaintiff uh, was the person who had to ha actually have relied uh, and to the extent that that plaintiff actually relied could bring the claims on behalf of the rest of the class. And the second part of that is, is the likely to deceive standard. In a mass advertising uh, program like in tobacco or cereal advertising, uh, obviously the intent of the advertising is to induce people to take certain action. And there's a certain presumption with respect to the fact that the advertising has its likely outcome. So if a mass advertising program, for example, like in the tobacco situation, is likely to deceive the public, was intended to cause some reaction in the public, like buying cigarettes, then uh, the court found that that is sufficient for purposes of showing the rest of the class was misled by that advertising. So you don't have to show that each and every member of the class actually saw an ad, actually relied on that ad, and actually... Uh, started to buy cigarettes or smoke cigarettes uh, based on that ad. It's sufficient for the class representative to show that. Are there any other significant aspects of the Tobacco Two cases ruling? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, some would argue that this was the law to begin with, uh, similar to likely to deceive, you know, which was the rule before Prop 64 and continues to be the rule now after Prop 64. There was also an aspect of causation relative to the tobacco two cases. And causation in California, going back to uh, the Gonzalez case, which is another California Supreme Court case, uh, is a substantial factor test. Uh, and there's a long history about whether or not causation should be proximate causation in the true traditional sense, or uh, it is a substantial factor test, which is the uh, recognized causation standard in California. And what the substantial factor test means is that there can be multiple concurrent causes of somebody's harm. And so long as one of those causes is a substantial factor in causing the harm, it doesn't matter that one or more of the other factors are also substantial. 
Uh, and that was the law before Prop 64, and that's been the law that's been applied uh, for many years in California. The tobacco two cases uh, reaffirmed, I would say, that that is the law. And even though you do have to still show causation, that's an important element of the cause of action, nonetheless, you don't have to show that the advertising, in the case of tobacco, was the only cause uh, of you buying cigarettes and being harmed. Uh, you don't have to even show that it was the only uh, uh, substantial cause. There could be other substantial causes as well, concurrent and substantial causes. But you do have to show that it was a substantial cause, and it did lead directly to your being injured. So I would say, personally, that Tobacco II clarified what the law already was, as opposed to breaking any ground in that regard. But nonetheless, it was an important clarification because the Prop 64 language had uh, muddied the waters a bit on what had to be shown since there was language in Prop 64 related to having to show you were actually damaged and that every member of the class would actually have to show that they were damaged similar to the reliance issue that we've talked about. Uh, the language, I believe, was you'd have to show that you were damaged as a result of, and the as a result of language, uh, which was not really out of cases, but was something that was designed for the, the proposition itself uh, caused some uncertainty as to what causation meant, and Tobacco II cleared that up. Have any appellate courts interpreted the Supreme Court's Tobacco II ruling? Uh, yes, they have. There have been a, a series of opinions that have come out since then. Can you uh, generally characterize how they've ruled? They have uh, applied uh, it pretty faithfully, and uh, they've concluded that the Tobacco II case cases uh, generally stand for the proposition that the likely to deceive standard does apply to all unnamed class members. And again, uh, this is not hard for appellate courts to do because that's really what they were doing before Prop 64, and that's really what the law has been for decades. So it's not an unfamiliar uh, place for appellate courts to be in. Right. Uh, has this decision led to a change in how unfair competition law cases are handled? Well, you know, uh, as with all cases, and as with all laws, uh, there's always two sides of the story. And a lot of people said that the Tobacco II cases and the result therein was very uh, plaintiff-friendly and that uh, brought uh, the 17200 unfair competition law back to where it should be. But there are aspects of the Tobacco II cases which create a heightened burden for plaintiffs who are bringing these cases. And even though uh, likely to deceive and substantial factor causation are still the law, nonetheless, there's language in those cases which does raise the bar a bit for plaintiffs. So I think one thing that has changed is that uh, plaintiffs who are looking at unfair competition claims are not looking to bring purely 17200 claims and are trying to diversify the claims that are brought and surround those 17200 claims with other causes of action so that if there is any problem prevailing on the uh, higher standard, they have other causes of action to rely upon. And I think it also has caused the plaintiff's bar to look more carefully uh, at what 17200 cases they bring, even though the standard of likely to deceive and the causation standard was upheld. Nonetheless, the whole analysis in the tobacco two cases, the whole experience with Prop 64, 
and the abuses that occurred before Prop 64 that led to the, the voters enacting it. All of that is, I think, given plaintiffs far a little bit more uh, hesitation to just go out and bring any 17200 case, and I think there's a lot more consideration going into what cases to bring so that we don't have the pendulum swing back to where it was uh, before the Tobacco II cases were decided. How has the Tobacco II decision affected your practice? Well, you know, I, I will tell you uh, an anecdote. I tried a, a 17200 case many years ago when uh, one of my co-authors, Justice Rushing, was on the Santa Clara County Superior Court. We represented a group of uh, gas station dealers who had a dispute with their franchisor uh, over their leases and over the amount they were paying for their gas. And uh, I was thinking back for purposes of doing this podcast, you know, what the experience was like in that case and how I might do things differently today in order to uh, comply with some of the you know, new analysis that's come out on uh, 17200. And I really, when I look back on it, I, I think that you know, good plaintiff's firm to investigate their cases and, and gather all their facts before they bring the case and really are determined to go to trial on those cases if they don't settle beforehand, really are not going to do things a lot differently because the key is the investigation. And if, if the facts are there and there's truly something that has harmed people and it's been done on a uh, class-wide basis, uh, typically uh, under 17200, either under the fraudulent prong of it, the unfair prong of it, or the illegal prong of it, you're going to be able to fit those facts into one aspect of 17200. But again, I, I would say uh, people are just going to do a little bit more work now in their initial investigation and have to have a, a plaintiff who really is going to pass muster in terms of being somebody who is a true victim of the problem. Uh, you're not going to be able to have situations where an elected official of the state of California who never really was impacted by the problem is nonetheless going to go in and bring a class action on behalf of those who are uh, who were impacted, similar to what we had before Prop 64. So again, I think the change in our practices is that we're being more selective about cases and trying to make better decisions about what cases to bring. Talk a little bit about what you feel is the greatest issue facing attorneys who handle unfair competition law cases today. I think that uh, there's still, even though it's starting to go away, a taint on 17200 cases that was brought about by uh, the Trevor Law Group uh, abuses and all the resulting uh, publicity related to Prop 64. I think that for a period of time there, 17200 was viewed as a catch-all cause of action that would be brought in connection with every case. Now, whereas when it was enacted originally, it was intended to protect competition in the state of California and to not allow one competitor to get an unfair disadvantage over another competitor, nor to have consumers harmed as a result of uh, unfair competition. Uh, it became a uh, claim that was basically thrown into almost every case. And when that happened, and we had the abuses uh, of the Trevor Law Group, I think a lot of courts became kind of disgruntled about the use of 17200. So I, I, I think there's still a bit of a taint there. Uh, I think that uh, 
you know, you have a statute which has been around for some time, has been interpreted now uh, a number of times by the California Supreme Court, and really had a, uh, a, a good intention when it was first uh, made into law, which is to protect competition, to create the opportunity for people to compete fairly in California, and to provide the consumer with the fairest uh, goods and services that could be provided. I think that we have a little ways to go to come back to where we were right at the beginning uh, during the golden era, if you could call it that, of 17200, and to convince courts that maybe still have a lingering doubt that it's being you know, used in the wrong way, uh, to convince those courts to uh, you know, go back to where we were. Among all of your professional commitments, you've managed to remain a solid contributor to the Matthew Bender Practice Guide on California Unfair Competition and Business Torts. Why is that? Well, I've always enjoyed writing, and I feel very strongly that as an officer of the court and having been the lucky recipient of a professional education, uh, you got to give back, and it's my one way of, of trying to do that is not only writing and then putting out books and articles, but also participating in uh, a number of organizations, both uh, charitable, community-oriented, as well as legal organizations. And it does take a lot of extra time, but I think we owe it to not only uh, the community, but we owe it to uh, the law students and the people who are coming up behind us to put that time back in so that we make sure that they have the same strong foundation that we had when we were coming up as, as lawyers. I, I also, as with respect to this particular publication, I mean, one of the main reasons I wanted to do this book is because I had such distinguished and outstanding co-authors. I mean, both of my co-authors are judges. You know, judge Wyckoff just became a judge in the last couple of years. Uh, Justice Rushing uh, was a long time judge in the Santa Clara Superior Court and was known uh, for handling the complex program down there single-handedly, putting it together, and is now, of course, on the California Court of Appeals. And these are two incredibly smart and gifted individuals, so I felt very honored to be able to do a book with them. And, you know, because they are on the bench now, they can't, they can't promote the book themselves, but I know they're very proud of it, and I think one of the things that the... Uh, the practice guide uh, does provide for those out there who use it. There are the tips that the judges have included in there, which you don't get a lot in a lot of books. It, it gives you a really good practical overview, but it also gives you plaintiff and defense tips, as well as you know what the judges are saying about what should be done on these various questions that we're talking about. And it really is comprehensive on all the causes of action that you would, would consider when you're bringing claims under 17200 or any of the related uh, claims you might bring. You touched on this in your, your answer there, but let me ask you if there are any other features of the practice guide that, that you particularly like. Well, the judge's perspective, obviously, is the first on the list. And when we first started doing the practice guide, the, the people who helped us at LexisNexis suggested that this would be a, a, a really great point to emphasize, and, and they were right. I think that's why it's been such a successful uh, book for, uh, for the company. I, I like it also because it's broken out by causes of action, and it's broken out in a manner which, you know, 
you get the plaintiff's perspective, the defense perspective, and the judge's perspective. I also think that you know it's great that you're able to uh, do things electronically and to jump to particular uh, areas of the book and to other sources and information because of links and such. So overall, I, I hope it's been helping people a lot. I, I use it, and I hope everybody else uh, will as well. We've been speaking with Bruce L. Simon, a partner with Pearson, Simon, Warshaw & Penny, a California class action and civil litigation firm, and a contributing author to the Matthew Bender Practice Guide, California Unfair Competition and the Business Torts. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today, Mr. Simon. You've been listening to the LexisNexis Torts and Personal Injury Law Community Podcast. Visit the Torts and Personal Injury Law Community and all our communities at www.lexisnexis.com slash community. The LexisNexis Torts and Personal Injury Law Community Podcast. Copyright 2010 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis, total practice solutions. I'm Steve Burstler. Thank you for listening.